So welcome everyone to the Life After Pain show. Today we have with us Paul Ingram. Paul is a science writer and spent 10 years running a busy massage therapy practice before founding PainScience.com. He's written for many other sites including ScienceBasedMedicine.org but primarily for Pain Science where he gets around 25,000 visitors a day. Now this interview is going to be inter interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, Paul is one of the most well-researched writers out there, and he doesn't shy away from debunking popular remedies when the evidence doesn't support them. And secondly, we're going to explore a subject of great importance to all listeners on lifeafterpain.com, namely, how your pain system can malfunction, and more importantly, what you can do about it. So, welcome, Paul. Hi, Naomi. So, um, to get started... Could we go into the biology of pain? What actually is happening inside your body when, when you feel pain? Sure. Uh, there's the part of the pain system that everyone understands or thinks that they do, which is the, the information delivery about tissue damage. Something gets hurt and the nerves deliver that information to the brain. And then there's the other part, which is tragically uh, misunderstood and underrepresented uh, even after you know 20 30 years of pretty good research the role of the brain in evaluating that information combining it with a bunch of other factors and then making a decision about what you're going to feel that processing system that central modulation is uh, a really big deal and yet you don't hear nearly enough about it Okay, so, well, could you go into, into detail, um, a bit more detail on the first sure. and the second parts? Just mm -hmm. give people like yeah, a I mean, picture. That's, that's really the, that's the fun part. It's, the, okay. it's where things get really interesting. Um, and it's, it's where, what almost all chronic pain patients are concerned with. Um, the, the modulation of pain is really complex and problematic because it can go wrong. Um, all pain is brain-tuned. We don't experience anything painful without the brain making some kind of a decision, some kind of a judgment call about that pain. And it, it really takes the information from the tissues very seriously, but by no means is that the only factor. So the brain is constantly evaluating a huge number of variables when it is deciding whether or not you are going to have a painful experience. So the, the most interesting cases of pain, and there are lots of really great, weird examples of, of pain that's very strange and doesn't behave like we expect it to, and that's because of the brain tuning part. That's because of the modulating, because the modulating can get so counterintuitive and surprising. That's where pain science uh, really starts to become fun. And you have bizarre stuff like if your hand hurts and you look at it through a magnifying glass, it hurts more, which is a, you know, it's like a, the pain equivalent of an optical illusion a very strange experience that demonstrates that the brain is constantly tinkering with our painful sensations. That is weird. I had no idea yeah. that that could happen. Yeah, and there's, and there's probably 50 things like that. Um, I, I couldn't begin to list them all at once, but there's a, there's a lot of really interesting examples. Um, just before our call here, I got... I got lost browsing around my own website and uh, reading through examples. And there's just there's such great ones. This um, this one jumped out at me uh, a few minutes ago. The the guy who had a metal rod embedded in his arm that was painless for 50 years. Uh, he was in a car accident, and uh, the um, uh, the turn signal rod, the the little thin piece of metal, you know, that in an old car was basically just a metal rod a few inches long, it got lodged in his arm, a turn signal lever lodged completely in his arm during an accident. 
and he was so badly wounded that no one noticed it. It just got lost in the shuffle, and it healed inside of his arm and stayed there for five decades, and he didn't experience any pain until one day his arm began to ache and swell, and an x-ray revealed that he had this strange, thin third arm bone. And so you've got, you know, this immediately implies two questions. Uh, Why didn't it hurt in the first place? And why uh, did it finally start to hurt? Uh, It's another great example of how tissue damage does not have a straightforward one-to-one relationship with pain. And that's, you know, that's the theme around which we're going to be circling for the the whole conversation is that it's not one-to-one. It's usually one-to-one. It's, there's usually, when you stub your toe, there's a pretty um, inevitable reaction. You stub your toe and you're, you're going to hurt 99% of the time. But for chronic pain patients particularly, that, that nice tidy relationship, uh, it breaks down. It breaks down quite a bit and it breaks down quite tragically. Okay, so this brain modulation, mm-hmm. what is actually happening when, when that process is occurring? Mm-hmm. Well, it all happens before you have any conscious thoughts about it. Um, one of the basic deep ideas here is that you are not your brain, that consciousness is a thin scum on top of a whole bunch of other stuff going on underneath the surface, that your, your brain and your mind are two separate things. And we... Um, are informed by our brain about what we think and what we feel. And so a painful experience, by the time we experience it, the brain has already done a whole bunch of stuff. And mostly what it's, what it's doing or trying to do as best it can, right? It's, a, it's an imperfect universe. So, you know, there's no way that life could evolve for this to work perfectly, but the brain is trying to motivate you to avoid danger. And it's easy to see with you know, all kinds of basic examples that, yeah, pain is, is a signal that you should watch out for something that should be avoided. Uh, probably predators, mostly. You know, that that's, that's probably basically how the pain system evolved is there are things out there in the world that will hurt you if you get too close to them. So don't get close to them, run away. But of course, the problem is that there's all kinds of painful things that we can't avoid. How do you run from your own tissues? So this is, the brain is trying to do this. It's trying to decide uh, whether or not you should do something, and if so, what? And pain is is basically this like really serious provocation. It the painful experience is meant to make absolutely sure that you do something. Um, it doesn't send a subtle message like um, an itch or you know a pleasant tingling. Pain is guaranteed to get your attention and get you probably moving. So if at all possible, uh, that's what the brain is doing. It's trying to make a decision that will lead to some kind of protective or defensive action on your part. And um, the trouble is, is that there are so many circumstances where there is no action that actually makes any sense which is very frustrating and problematic. It makes being human um, pretty irritating at times. Okay, so the pain is is like somebody um, pulling the emergency cord on a train or something. It's like if there's Mm -hmm. a problem, um, it's the one thing guaranteed to get a response, but um, it may not be a helpful thing to do. Right. I mean, there just may literally be nothing you can do. You know, it's that the system evolved to get you to, to do something, but you, there, there may be no corrective action, no evasive action, no defensive action. There's literally just nothing you can do. Okay. And so this, this pain modulation can go both ways, right? It can go 
dialing yeah. the pain up or dialing the pain down. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of it being dialed down. Uh, the the classic one that started this whole pain science revolution decades ago, long long time ago, way back in World War II, the the, the famous observation that soldiers wounded in battle experienced surprisingly little pain. You know, they would suffer these grievous wounds and yet not hurt that much. And I have a great family anecdote about this because my dad is a Vietnam veteran and he was shot in Vietnam fairly early in the war in a big battle, one of the first big battles of the war. And uh, he he's often talked about how little pain he experienced, um, surprisingly little for the seriousness of the wound, and it was a really bad gunshot wound. His uh, femur was shattered. Uh, the x-ray is super impressive. It's just bone chips from hip to knee. The, the whole bone just kind of went poof. And he was knocked down, and he felt he felt real, real bad. It's not, not, it's not like he was happy, but he didn't experience that much pain. Uh, because in the context of battle and, and, and war, very often being shot means you're out. In a sense, you're safer once you're shot. And uh, soldiers, when they realize that they're going home, that's a tremendous modulating factor um, that dampens the painful experience. Uh, by contrast, if you suffer a wound in civilian life, and it means that you're out of a job and you're already financially strapped, uh, that wound can be far more painful because it has very stressful and painful implications. So that's a really basic example of up modulation and down modulation based on social circumstances, that depending on the situation in which the pain happens and what it implies for your life, um, that alone can make a huge difference to how that pain is experienced. So is that the main factor in terms of what's going to modulate the pain up and down is whether it means to your brain, if whether that's correct or not, but whether it means to your brain more danger mm. or less danger? Uh, I don't know that I would call it the main factor. It's, that's a great question because it's, it, it, it gets right to the heart of the best mysteries. Uh, if we knew you know, all the factors and which ones were the most heavily weighted, that would be really good to know. That would be super useful. <laughs> but we don't. Um, it's, it's clear that, that uh, social factors and context, the context of injury is a big deal, that it definitely has a major effect. Uh, but there's clearly a lot of other factors as well. And some of them are uh, quite puzzling. We basically don't know why the brain decides what it decides about pain half the time. And that's particularly true with chronic pain. Uh, it's, it, pain seems uh, really irrational at times. The, the classic modulation examples, they're usually interesting and fun because we can see why. You know, we, we can see why the soldier might be fairly relieved to get out of the battle. Um, but then there's all kinds of chronic pain experiences. They just make no sense, right? And you can, you know, patients go go crazy with the, the seeming um, arbitrariness of it. You know, why, why am I hurting? There's no reason for it. Um, so clearly the brain uses some factors we don't understand. Um, and then, of course, there's also the possibility, and this is, you know, this is another big part of the equation here, there's also the possibility the brain just gets it wrong, like that it malfunctions and the nervous system does not do a good job at all sometimes of deciding how much pain you should feel. So um, would it be fair to say that for some people in chronic pain, um, when it doesn't make sense, there's no connection to physical damage or the physical damage is very slight? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's that's yeah that I'd say that's roughly fair it, it it's a continuum it's a scale you, you've got situations where 
there's uh, a really obvious connection with something going on in the tissue, then you've got situations where there's no apparent connection whatsoever, uh, and then everything in between. Um, and this would be a great place to put in um, a personal story. I have unfortunately had a lot of direct experience with this in the last year. I got something stuck in my throat in the summer of 2014, and I didn't know what it was, and I started to hurt. It wasn't very bad, but it, it became very irritating. You know, like, imagine something stuck between your teeth, and it gets uncomfortable, but you can't floss it, and you can't find it. So this was a nagging tonsil pain that slowly got worse and worse and worse, and it turned into a year of hell. It turned into a serious chronic pain problem. And in fact, before I was finally uh, fixed, um, before we found out what was stuck in my tonsil, um, I actually was diagnosed with a chronic pain disorder uh, that had no, there was no explanation. You know, there's nothing wrong with your tissues. We can't find anything. Uh, it must be your brain malfunctioning. But it wasn't my brain malfunctioning. It was my brain responding to something stuck in my tonsil. It was a, uh, it's a crazy thing. It's um, a thing called a tonsil stone. Uh, mostly harmless, usually not a problem. But once in a while, a tonsil stone will get unusually hard and sharp. It's just basically a little calcified piece of crud that sticks in the cracks in your tonsil. And I had one that developed into a pretty hard, sharp, uh, very irritating little thing. And uh, it, was, it was maddening to have that experience and to have that sensation for so long uh, without knowing what it was. And it's a, it's a terrific example of the dilemma that chronic pain patients are in. For that entire year, I was told by one professional after another that they couldn't find anything wrong that there was, you know, there was no sign of anything going on in my tissues, no good rational explanation for why I would be having so much pain and suffering. And it even got to the point where I was basically ready, you know, me, a pain guy, you know, it's all I do is think and work and write about pain all day long every day. I was ready to embrace the, the idea that there was nothing actually wrong with my body. And then one day, August 5th, at about 11:20 a.m. in the morning the tonsil stone came out and it fixed my problem completely immediately that was the end of it and so now i know there was a tissue problem so this is this is a huge dilemma for pain patients is there or isn't there a tissue problem? Sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. And then there's all kinds of scenarios where the truth is in the middle, where there's a tissue problem, but it's nowhere near as bad as the pain seems to suggest, that the reaction to it is wildly disproportionate to what's actually wrong. And that's called sensitization. And that's where most chronic pain patients are. There's something, there's a seed of truth, there's a kernel of truth to their pain of tissue problem, but less than you would think from all the pain. Right, okay. And, I mean, in your case, you know, the tonsil stone came out and the problem went away. Um, right. But in, in some cases say lower back pain um right. i don't know you could probably quote <laughs> a lot of uh, statistics but um yeah you know the the herniated disc or um you know a slight scoliosis and you know firstly it's very difficult to fix but then what we can do to fix it may not stop the pain i don't know what what right. are your thoughts on that yeah, well, I was lucky because something was inside my tonsil that could come out. But, of course, a lot of chronic pain problems are sustained by nociception that isn't going away. Uh, I should probably define nociception. Uh, yes, please. That's the, <laughs> that's the, uh, the interpretation of tissue damage by nerve endings. 
So when, when tissue damage is detected by nerve endings, that's called nociception. It's not pain yet. It's just nerves reacting to various chemical signals and other signals and turning it into uh, uh, information that's delivered to the brain. So nociception is the delivery of information to the brain that might indicate tissue damage. And then the brain decides whether or not it actually does constitute a, a meaningful alarm. So nociception, uh, plenty of that going on in the back for, for people. Um, and yeah, there may, not be, there may not be any way to stop it. Okay, so, well, hmm. thinking about <laughs> the best, yeah, no, because I, I, I've been I've been reading uh, in, in your articles about the things that do actually help if yeah. you're able to isolate, well, able to. Um, firstly, what kind of investigations, um, or what kind of things will point people towards? pain sensitization as the cause or a big part of what's causing their pain. Yeah, that's, and that's really important. You know, as you're trying to figure out, is there something wrong with me or, um, or is my pain system just being loud and overreactive? You, you have to have some way of, of trying to figure that out, of trying to, to, to judge that. For uh, most chronic pain patients, the, the relationship between tissue damage and, and pain intensity slowly but surely breaks down. Not for everyone and not always very badly, but it's a strong trend. The longer you have pain, the more sensitized you tend to get. And so how do you figure out if you're sensitized? Um, how, how could I possibly have known before my tonsil stone came out, am I sensitized or is there something really wrong? And another important point about my case is that, you know, I got this huge validation that there was something really wrong. But think about the guy with the metal rod in his arm. Here I was going out of my mind with pain and suffering from a tiny little stone wedged in a crack in the in the back of my throat not that big a deal if that guy could live with a metal rod in his arm painlessly for 50 years how come how come i was in misery and the answer is probably that i had something wrong with my tissue and sensitization they were both going on there was something wrong and my nervous system was overreacting to it and and I, that was obvious to me at the time, before the you know before the the big reveal, it was pretty obvious because there were all kinds of clues that I was too sensitive to all kinds of things, and that's basically what you have to try to figure out: Am I overreacting to stimuli? Um, my uh, my dad comes in handy here again uh, as a PTSD guy from being a veteran and getting shot. He's had a number of spin-off problems from that. And a few years ago, he got uh, a problem called hyperacusis, which is uh, basically a sensitization of hearing. So you can see how there might be a connection here. Uh, everything sounded super loud to him. Imagine being in a restaurant and it sounds like a rock concert. Uh, it took him about two years to deal with that. And a big part of the process of dealing with that was learning to trust my mother's judgments on whether or not things were actually loud. His doctor instructed him every time he heard a sound that he thought was painfully loud just to turn to my mom and say, how, how loud was that on a scale of 10? And he was instructed to trust her judgment because, of course, he, you know, his system was out of whack. He needed to recalibrate. So that's basically what, what pain patients need to do as well. They need to try to figure out whether or not that pain is too loud. But it's much harder because no one else can tell you whether or not that thing hurts as, as much as it should because it's a totally personal and internal experience. 
if I poke you in the chest really hard, um, you can maybe have a rough sense of how painful that should be. We could poke 50 people in the chest with 10 pounds of pressure and ask them all to rate it on a scale of 10, and we might get a rough idea of how much a 10-pound poke in the chest should hurt, and then you could compare to that. But most experiences, most painful experiences, there's just no way. There's just no way to know how painful it is, quote-unquote, supposed to be. Um, I don't know how painful a tonsil stone is supposed to be. I guess we could put a tonsil stone into 50 people for six months and get them to rate it, but that would probably be unethical. I, th- I think you wouldn't get too many volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd have to pay them very well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's, just, there's, no, there's no way to be sure. Uh, you have to uh, be creative about it and give it your best, honest guess. Usually for severely sensitized patients, it's pretty obvious. There's all kinds of clues that things are hurting too much. Um, but... You know, for every case that's obvious, there's probably 50 cases that are, eh, you know, they're sensitized, but they're only sensitized 10 or 20 or 30% as much as the, the severe case. And it's just pretty much impossible to, to know. Um, they're actually feeling things 20% more than they should, but there's no way to know. There's no way to actually confirm that. So you do your best to you know, to guess whether or not that's what's going on. And a lot of what chronic pain patients ultimately need to do is just act as if. You just, you just assume, well, I'm probably sensitized. I can't, I don't know for sure, but probably. And you, you work with that. You go with that assumption and you start doing the things that help sensitization. Okay, which um, leads very nicely onto what I was going to ask you next. But first, so let's just go over this again because this is, is sounds so interesting but incredibly difficult. Yeah. Basically, you have to question your own perception of reality. Yeah. Hmm. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> not, it's not an existential crisis, right? I mean, when you're, when you're in serious chronic pain, you, you do question your reality. You have to. But make it practical, you know. It's, that's maybe offers some reassurance to people. Is that when you're in that, when you're, in, you're in that tough corner, you're already questioning your existence. And maybe this way we can put it to good use and understand it as, uh, as something that we can work with. Okay. So leading with the assumption that anyone who's been in pain for a long time probably has some degree of sensitization. Right. Then what are the things that have been shown to help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The top of the list is education. Um, that increased confidence through education has been shown to work. Um, I have a dog in this fight. I, I publish educational information and I sell educational information, so perhaps it's not too surprising that I would um, um, have that bias confirmed by the science. Uh, but the, the evidence that has emerged is very promising so far. There's definitely strong indications that when people feel more confident, um, they feel less pain. So, um, and even if it's not proven, it's very rational and plausible and well worth trying. And, you know, the worst case scenario is you end up no better off with your pain, but at least you have learned something. So self-education is the, the top of the list and the most obvious example. Uh, but this is a very deep well because the, the question here is if, if pain is an output of the brain, if pain is something that the brain tunes, can we untune it? Can we convince the brain that we're not in pain? Is there such a thing as mind over pain? And that is a very difficult question and basically unanswered, right? We, this is, we're, we're now cruising um, out of scientific waters and into speculation waters. This is, you know, 
basically once we move away from the evidence for education, it just turns into a deep chat about you know how this might work and what kinds of things you might be able to do. Uh, and there's plenty of bad news. Like there's no question that we we have limited power to change our brain. Um, we are not the boss of our brains. The, our brains are the bosses of us. And there's just only so much that we can do. But I do think there are several promising possibilities. The good news is that we probably have at least some control over the things that the brain is using as inputs. So we might not be able to, through force of will, say, hey brain, would you, would you please stop deciding that this hurts? We may not be able to, to oomph our way to that, but we might be able to influence the things that are influencing the brain. So if the brain is considering X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C, and uh, a dozen other things, maybe a third of that list, maybe X and, and A, are things that we have some control over. And that's what we have to find. And it's all guesswork. You know, we're never going to know that that actually is something the brain is using, but we can make educated guesses. So the first example of that would be, uh, just to get the list going here, and I feel like I think I've, I think I've got roughly half a dozen um, types of approaches to this. Okay, um, yeah. So the first one is solve problems. So you remember earlier we talked about how the person who is injured and it, it means that they're out of a job. That's, like, that's a serious life problem, right? Like you have got, that's a real situation uh, when people lose their jobs to an injury. And not all life problems are solvable, not by a long shot. Um, so for instance, insomnia, anxiety, depression are all major predictors of pain chronicity and therefore of pain sensi sensitivity. Those are basically synonymous. If, you're, if you are a strong candidate for chronic pain, you're, that basically means the same as you're a strong candidate for sensitization. And we know that people with anxiety, depression, insomnia, um, they are seriously predisposed to chronic pain. So those are problems that are really difficult to solve, but they are usually solvable. Uh, think of it like addiction. Um, and not even think, it's not even an analogy. Actual addiction is, an, is another good example, like a smoker. Smokers are really pain prone for all kinds of biological and probably psychological reasons as well. So an addiction is a problem that you can solve in your life and it's really hard, but no one denies that it's, you know, we all know it's possible to solve addictions. It's just really hard. Um, so the number one job for anyone who is sensitized, for anyone in chronic pain, job one is, is find out, um, actually, I think I already signed education to job one. So job two is <laughs> solve problems, solve the solvable. Um, and especially sleep anxiety and depression. Those are our major targets. And that is, you know, to give an example of the range, if you have, um, if you're a single mom and you're out of work and in debt um, and you've got an abusive ex, um, you're probably not going to solve anxiety. Like that, some anxiety just isn't going to go away because it's strongly related to life circumstances. But then at the other end of the extreme, you have me in my 20s where I was super worried about everything for no particularly good reason except that I was, um, you know, I don't know, seemed, I was a drama queen. <laughs> so, um, that was really solvable in the big page. It didn't seem like it at the time, but that was a very solvable anxiety problem. So that's a, that's a, 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 a big job for anyone in chronic pain is to look for anything like this in your life that you can solve. 
and take that out of the brain's considerations. Take that out of the equation. I've got a question here um, because I can't remember where I read it. Um, to do with antidepressants in small doses being useful for chronic pain. Right, yeah. Is that, mm-hmm. is that uh, in any way connected with uh, how depression is a very high predictor of mm-hmm. being in pain as well? Uh, we assume so, uh, but I imagine uh, that the evidence is mixed, uh, that we, we don't have smoking gun, nice clear evidence that taking antidepressants helps depression and or helps chronic pain. But I know that there have been indications of that in the research, and I would assume that that's why, that, you know, to the extent that, that antidepressants can treat depression, uh, they probably help chronic pain. Okay. Right. So, um, on to number three. So, first, education. Second, um, insomnia, depression, and anxiety, to the extent that you can deal with these, as well as life situations that will naturally stress anyone out. Right. Uh, what's next on the list? Sure. I'm looking at my own list right now, deciding what's the, what's the next best thing. Um, this, this is probably the most direct. Um, I call this being kind to your nervous system. Uh, the sensitized person, of course, uh, has a very unhappy nervous system. Uh, in, in many cases, you know, outright malfunctioning. I should, I should throw that in here. Another, another thing about sensitization is that it's, it's not just an irrational overreaction. It's an, it can be an actual malfunction. You know, where the, the nerves are not working right. And uh, people, epileptics, have something wrong with their nervous system, so they have seizures, and people in chronic pain can have something wrong with their nervous system, so they have chronic pain. So we have a very sick nervous system sometimes. Um, and you can do everything you can to be nice to it. You just basically want to make yourself feel as safe as possible because pain is fundamentally about uh, avoiding danger. You want to directly counter that by making yourself feel safe. Um, There are all kinds of ways to do that. But this, I mean, this is the most fun treatment idea ever because I'm basically talking about be a hedonist seek out pleasure and comfort. Um, Another uh, person might tell you to meditate. Um, And I could could suggest that too. But um, I think that pleasure and comfort and safety are way more fun and probably more effective. So what what would that look like? Hot baths and and relaxing massages, hot chocolate? um. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, seriously, um, whatever you like, right? And obviously, life problems are going to interfere with this. You know, the, the single mom, again, probably doesn't have a lot of opportunities to take long hot soaks in the bath. Um, so, you know, there, there are situations in which you're not going to be able to give your, your central nervous system a bunch of TLC. Um, but to the greatest extent possible, um, give your nervous system every possible opportunity to feel safer. And this is basically the neurological equivalent of protecting a broken arm with a cast. You know, that when, when you're in a healing phase, there's a certain amount of protection and safety needed. And you don't want to stay there, right? You know, like you could, you could see how someone could become, particularly if they've also, say, got um, an anxiety problem, they could become agoraphobic in you know, they, they could get so focused on being safe that they start to become afraid of leaving the house. Um, that's actually a pretty realistic scenario given how often anxiety is going to be part of the equation here. Uh, so it's, you know, emphasis on the temporary, that it, this is part of a healing strategy, this is part of a, a rehabilitation strategy. You're not going to do it forever. But, you know, one good example of how you might implement it is um, if you have a partner and, um, and they're nice, and you're, you're with them because they're nice, uh, you, could, you could explain to them and you could say, you know what, for the next little while, more foot rubs. 
six months. <laughs> Extra foot rubs. Um, or whatever, right? Whatever whatever feels good. That for a while, you know, in order to solve a really bad problem, you need more good stuff. So, you know, there's, you could re really have fun with this. You could really get creative and fun in coming up with every possible way to make your life easier. You might even decide when it's, um, as, as you, you know, slowly solve the problem, get out of pain, that why don't I just live like this all the time? Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's, probably, um, that's probably the most entertaining solution that I have. Okay, cool. A pleasure cure. A pleasure cure. I think you'd have great success if you people about that. It's highly marketable, I imagine. It's extremely, yeah. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm already sold on that one. Tell people what they want to hear, right? Oh, well, yeah, especially, you know, if it, if it works, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's next on the list? What's next? Um, don't dramatize your pain. Um, I call this um, not being a pain drama queen. Um, I accused myself of being a drama queen when I was younger. Uh, nobody's more drama queeny than the average sensitized person. Uh, first of all, full sympathy to, to them. I've been there. I know exactly what it's like. But Nothing makes it more tempting to dramatize your pain uh, or to dramatize than being in pain and not having anyone believe you or understand how bad it is. So you, almost everyone in chronic pain, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, there are plenty of really stoic people who aren't drama-oriented at all, but a lot of people in chronic pain, uh, they get really colorful with their pain descriptions. Um, very creative, lots of metaphors, lots of lots of intensity in the descriptions, and and often you're you're doing it because you're not believed, and you're you're trying to make it, you're fluffing it up, trying to make it bigger, like a cat fluffing itself up to seem more threatening, just so that you'll be taken seriously, but it's um, it's a trap. And the more you dramatize, the more basically you are you are becoming as this lovely feedback system. Your brain is bossing you around and telling you that you're in pain and, and you're cooperating. You're you're sending information back. Your conscious mind is turning around and saying, Yeah, it's really bad. It's like being poisoned for a thousand years. Whatever colorful imagery occurs to you that you pump back into the system, your brain goes yeah, I know. Like totally, right? I'm I'm telling you how bad it is and you're agreeing. So, you really want to avoid uh reinforcing that. Uh, we want to take away uh inputs into the pain system that that convince your brain that you're in pain, not add to them. So, it's very important to try not to get too excited and too creative in your descriptions and not get too absorbed in how awful it is. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because I mean <laughs> if if you that makes perfect sense. You just uh, part of part of the amplification cycle otherwise and putting yeah. more attention on the pain in, in in greater detail and Yeah. Yeah. Catastrophization is is one of the the buzzwords in the in the business, and that's kind of what I'm talking about, although it's different, right? Catastrophization is where you're afraid of the worst. That's more of an anxiety issue. This is more, more controllable. Like anxiety can be really hard to control. You can be catastrophizing, and it can be nearly impossible to, to, to nip that in the bud. Um, but drama, that, once you understand that it's a problem, it's much easier to control. And my emphasis here is on is, you know, where do we have leverage? What, what is most doable? And drama is almost definitely fixable. You just have to be aware and vigilant. And with, with reference to the first point of education, mm -hmm. that um, could definitely help with the catastrophization. 
<laughs> if you see, you know, that, um, I, you know, one of the worst fears is people that their pain is going to continue getting worse until they're completely disabled. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I don't know, but I think that's not incredibly common. But the danger is that, especially with the internet, you can read anything and everything, and some of it is downright yeah. scary, even if it's not, you know, if it's statistically incredibly unlikely. <laughs> Once you're aware of it and you haven't, like, you know, got the filters to go, okay, well, is this even a likely scenario? Um, yeah. It's very easy to go there if you're not careful about where you're getting your, your education from. Yes. I, this is a, this a, it's a really great point. Um, the the Google search is usually not reassuring, and there's this huge difference between reassuring education and scary education. And this is probably why the the evidence on the effectiveness of education is is mixed, uh, because not all education is reassuring. I think. On the whole, it, it probably is that you know actually increased knowledge, if that could somehow be tested or verified, usually increases confidence and, and, and reassurance, and that's that's a good thing. But how many people doing you know the desperate googling for answers actually end up with substantive education versus just um, they find a really scary picture? <laughs> right? yeah, it's super hazardous, <laughs> I mean, um, and I'm terrible at this. I actually have this. You know like how some people will swoon at the sight of blood? I swoon at the sight of scary medical ideas. Um, I actually get dizzy when I'm, when I'm Googling for something that's related to my own health and I see something that's, that's spooky or, you know, well, I hope I don't have that, even if I know I don't, even if I am absolutely sure that's not my problem, it's just something that I've seen along the way, I will actually swoon in my chair as I'm sitting there looking at it. And that's, you know, that's how powerful nocebo can be. So it's a very serious challenge, and there's, I don't think there's any easy answer for that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of recognized for med students when they start yeah. going through pathologies. They sort of warned that, okay, once you start learning about how to diagnose these, you may experience that you may have symptoms for some of these, but you don't. Right. <laughs> Just like, no, you don't. And that's, but that's what can happen when you, when yeah. you read up about this. Or, yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, we're coming to the top of the hour. And okay. you've covered some fantastic material, really helpful, practical stuff. And I know that people listening to this will want to find out more. And I'm going to link to your site and to um, the article on Pain is Weird as well underneath this interview. But is there anything right. else that you'd like to recommend um, on your site that people go and check out? I think for, for this conversation, um, there is really only one key article on painscience.com. And so your, your link to that will be the gateway to, to pretty much anything else that people might want to read about it. Um, but I could cough up an example like my back pain tutorial is hopefully a really good example of reassuring educational information. Um, back pain is particularly fraught with with uh, scary stuff and scary possibilities and back pain patients are typically much more scared of their backs than they need to be. So hopefully that is a good example of educational information that actually reassures and does the, the opposite of causing nocebo. Uh, so that might be a good one for a lot of people to check out. Um, there's a, a strongly related article to the general pain article um, and I'll, I'll make sure you've got a link to that as well, that's specifically about the phenomenon of sensitization, uh, which I think is probably pretty interesting reading for, for a lot of people. It's a very popular one. It's fairly short, and it basically just um, translates some key science on the issue, very, very focused on what is this thing called sensitization. Um, so that's, a, that's another good one. Cool. All right, and to finish off, there's <laughs> we've kind of covered this, but it's a question that I ask everyone I interview. It's mm -hmm. if there's one thing 
that you would recommend people go do right now to people with chronic pain who want to get back to healthy, active living? If there's one mm-hmm. thing that you could recommend them go right, do right now, what would that be? Mm. Oh, that's there's so many possibilities. Um, how do I pick one? Um, I, I'll, I'll just pick something else off the list of you know ways that you might be able to hack your your brain, um, and I'll suggest that you change something, um, anything really about how a painful area feels, uh, which means uh, create some kind of novel sensory input. Um, the, when you're in chronic pain, um, things get very tediously uh, the same. The same frustrating uh, sensations over and over and over again. So do something different with that area. Um, find any way to um, give input to the nervous system that isn't the pain some other sensation, any alternative sensation. And the world of therapy is absolutely full of of things like this, taping and bracing and splinting and salving and uh, different kinds of salves make you feel cool or warm and vibrating and icing. and It's just all this stuff that basically they all have the same thing in common, which is make it feel different. So that would be my suggestion is find some any way to make what hurts uh, experience a new sensation. Mm. Yeah, and that makes sense because um, I'm guessing it's you know there's only so much sensation you can have from one area. So yep. you're mm-hmm. mixing it in with um, with other sensation that isn't pain, but still mm-hmm. takes bandwidth. Yeah, and you could treat it like a like a you know a daily or even an hourly exercise. You know that you just constantly want that body part to experience something something nice and something different as often as possible um, in the hopes that that's going to change your equation. Cool. All right, Paul. Well, thank you very much. And Thank you.